So we're preparing for a sermon series that's happening in January called Created For. Um, I know it may surprise you that we actually think about those things months in advance. I don't know, but, but we do. Um, and, and we've been actually doing uh, video, uh, creating video series, uh, little introductory videos for this series uh, week to week. And so we've been in all kinds of different places. Daniel and I have been doing them. He got to drive a, what, what did you get to drive? An excavator? Okay. Well, hey, man, any, anyone, that's, anyone that you're not holding with your hand going, you know, like that, that's big for me. Okay, right? So, yeah, he got to, he got to do an excavator. Um, I, I got to pick grapes on Friday. That was kind of fun. Um, there were still a few left, uh, and that was good. Uh, but Wednesday, um, I went to a, uh, a sculptor. And, and a sculptor that works with cast bronze. Um, actually, it's the guy who, uh, if you've gone down to the Inner Harbor and you've seen the, the statue of the little girl that's like running into the arms of the sailor and everything, he, he actually cast that amongst many, many other sculptors, the, the people that are hanging on the benches down in Sydney, you know, like he took care of them too, uh, made them. So uh, really, really excellent experience. Lauren Knowles uh, doing the video work for us on that. And so... She and I got treated to about an hour before we even started videoing of him walking us through this process of taking something from an idea and turning it into a sculpture. And I had no idea how many steps were involved in this process. I just thought it was, I just thought, I don't know what I thought, but I, I didn't know that, that you did as many things as you did. He, he showed us he's got a foundry in his backyard and he has this crucible that heats the bronze up to like 1900 degrees, something incredible like that. He actually... He showed us this suit. It looks like it's out of, like, Breaking Bad or something. It's this big silver suit with, like, a hood on it and everything, and he has to, like, wear it, but it's insulated. I, I guess you could walk on the moon with it if, you, if it was, like, sealed up or something. It's, like, that good. It's, it's, it's really cool. But you have to pour this bronze very, very quickly. You have to have all your stuff set up and then, like, just pour it, pour it, pour it. Um, he has to pour all of his molds from the time that he... Uh, from the time that he heats the bronze up within like two minutes or like something will start to happen to it and it won't set right. And so it just, it, it's, there's as much science as artistry to it. And I, I just, I found it incredible. Um, I also realized that I have not near the artistic bone in my body to be able to do anything like that, nor the, nor the understanding of science and mechanics in order to do that well. And it made me kind of say, okay, well, what if I have an art form that I work on, if I have an art form that I'm a craftsman of, I hope that it is language. I hope that it is words. Uh, and some of you may challenge that on a Sunday. I don't know. But I would like to think that, that when I'm looking into the Word of God, when, when I'm preparing sermons, when I am... Uh, when I am seeking to see what the meaning in the text is and listening to the conversations about the word of God on a given passage and then shaping that toward the needs of the congregations that hopefully there's some art and some science going on there and that we're crafting something that is worthwhile and that's valuable. And, and I say that not to, not to pump myself up. I think it's more just to say like that is something that, that I'm trying to get better at, that I want to get better at, that I always want to be working at staying fresh and getting better um, at, at the craftsmanship of working with the Word of God and working with words, working with language, um, whether that's reading books or getting feedback. I've become a part of a, a group 
in the last couple of months called the League of Improving Preachers. That's a bunch of guys here that are working on, we're sharing sermons and we're sharing ideas and we're, and we're listening to each other and, 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 and critiquing each other in a, 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 a healthy manner, I think, you know, rather than a, wow, that stunk kind of manner. Um, but, but working on getting better at bringing God's word to his people. Um, in a way that impacts them. Hopefully someday we will change our name to the League of Extraordinary Preachers, but probably not anytime soon. And then just good old-fashioned practice, 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 run-throughs and things like that. Again, and it's all about trying to be better about handling the word and to be better about handling my words. And our reading this morning is one that, that swarms in the back of my head because it's a really good reminder to me that, that when you pursue the artistry and the craftsmanship of declaring the word of God, you will be subject to the appraisal of others. Just as any craftsman's work will be. A sculptor or an artist or, or an engineer, their work will be judged, right? Their work will be appraised. And, and, but here's the thing. James reminds me that the position of a craftsman of God's word is different than any other because I'm not just going to be appraised on my knowledge and skill of the word itself. I am appraised on its integration into my life. Uh, if, you're, if you're an artist, people don't, people don't associate your brush strokes with your character, Right? You could be a really good artist and maybe not such a good individual. You could be a really good singer and maybe not live such a great private life. But those things usually, even when they're splashed across the media, people go, yeah, well, that's what I figure. And you just, you know, you still listen to their songs anyway. Not so, not so with a craftsman of God's word. I'm judged on its integration into my life. Um, there's a difference between a good sermon and good preaching. Good sermons or good preaching comes not from the skill of crafting words or sentences. Good preaching comes from a person's character, I think. How submitted I am to God's spirit, how open the ears of my soul are to his prompting, how willing I am to move in motion with him. Those are the things that make preaching well. Preaching an art, um, preaching something that is done well. It's, it's, I'll be judged as much, if not more, by the words that I speak outside of the pulpit as the words that I speak from the pulpit. And I don't know if that's such a great recruitment poster for ministry. Come, join us. Be judged more harshly. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's such a great idea. But there is something even greater to consider out of the words of James this morning. He only keeps the focus on teachers for about a nanosecond longer in this passage. And then he widens it out and widens that circle to include all of us. Anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus lives in this reality. You and I are judged and appraised as much by the words that we speak on Monday through Saturday as the words of praise that we lift while we are here in this time and place. Would you agree with that? I would hope that you would. Um, James doesn't seem to pull many punches on that one. He seems to be fairly straightforward on that. And I think that becomes especially true the less familiar or receptive a place that you live is to the message of the gospel. And so if you consider our location and our time and space and where we live and when we live right now, there is a prevalent lack of knowledge and trust when it comes to people who follow Jesus. And that also means that our words and our lives have more critical effect for or against the kingdom of God than we might be 
led to believe at times, I think. We have to guard our speech. We have to think critically about what we say and how we say it because I think it has more impact now than it may have had at other times and places when Christianity had a more prominent position in the culture. But now that it gets pushed more and more to the margins, how you and I live will either affirm the suspicions or it will shatter the suspicions of suspicious people. And there are more people that are suspicious of Christianity than I think there have been in a long time in our world. And you may think, now that I'm kind of at cross-purposes of my title, how does the idea of generous speech mesh, mesh with this idea of carefully measuring our words? Generous kind of means throwing it all over the place, and now you're saying, well, we need to guard our speech. Here's where I think these two things that we need to consider about generosity come into play. Generosity should not be confused with recklessness or carelessness. That's not what generosity is. In fact, if we learn anything from last week, having generous expectations of what God can do in me and having generous expectations of what I can offer God actually involves considerable effort in my life. I have to align my heart and I have to align my mind with God's reality rather than my own assumptions and my own reason. That takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of intention. I can't just do that on my own. I have to actually stop and think and work at it. I have to train in the art of generous expectations. I have to actually craft my expectations to match God's word more and to match God's reality more. Generosity is all about casting wide your resources for the sake of the kingdom, but it's not mindlessly flinging away what you have. It's something else. Instead, generosity is being actively willing to do the hard work of assessing what you have and assessing what others really need and allowing the Spirit to overcome our natural resistance to offer the fullness of what is best out of our lives. That takes work. It's something that's both very spontaneous in the Spirit and as He brings those things into your life, you respond. We talked about that this morning um, in James, how, how works are designed to just flow out of the identity of who I am. But at the same time, it is very much a product of spiritual maturity and the discipline of the Spirit in our lives. And, and that would be no different with our speech than it is with anything else. So what does being generous with speech look like? A great example. In the beginning of 2014, okay, the city of Boer in South Sudan was completely eradicated by a militia coming down from northern Sudan. It was a racially and religiously motivated slaughter. There's no other way to put it. Tribal warfare had become inflamed by radical offshoots of Islam, and it led to an extermination of close to 10,000 of the primarily Christian population of that town. Okay? And a few weeks later, the world media was lined up, and they were listening intently as Justin Welby, who is the current Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Anglican Church. He was visiting and a man named Ding, Daniel Bing Deng Bul. He is the Archbishop of Africa. They were assembled at the town church to bless the mass graves of the city. Um, to, to lay to rest the clergy and the lay leaders and the townspeople that were all going to be buried shortly. And you've got every single microphone from the media all around the world being shoved in your face. What are you going to say at a time like that? At a, at a time, and, and, and 
reading the blog of, of, of Justin Welby about this, of, he's like, I can still smell the stench of the bodies in my nostrils as they're asking me, what is your reaction to this? What am I going to say? How am I going to respond? And, and I don't know how I would respond. Would, it, would, I, would the focus be on the corrupt reality of the world? Would I, would I, would I use that, that time to kind of say, like, this is just evidence of, of just how messed up the world is at times? It's true. Would I, would I use this as a time to focus on the atrocity and the need for justice or the need for even retribution, even by normal channels, not, not for revenge killings, not for, not for eye for an eye, but just to say this needs to stop? What would I say? And what amazes me is that instead they chose to spoke of the deep need for the church to forgive. For the church to seek reconciliation. For the church to do the hard work of redeeming that tragedy as a community of faith. And it was a really brave and bold and frankly unexpected move. I don't know what everybody expected them to say, but it was not that. In fact, you know, I, I looked at some of the transcripts of the interview and you could see the skepticism in the reporters going, yeah, yeah, that's all well and good, but how do you really feel about this? And they said, no, 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 this really is how we really feel about this. If we're going to be the church right now, if we're going to really, really be the church, then these are the things that we need to say. And these are the things that we need to do. And it really, it, it energized and confused the world. And, and using the power of words and tragic circumstances, they actually, they sowed values and vision of the kingdom. It's a perfect example because at its heart to live generously in our speech means that we see every word we speak as an opportunity to sow the life of the kingdom into the world around us. Even those hard-packed, those rocky, those prickly places that we find ourselves in on a daily basis. We're able to look into those things and say, what could the word of God sown into this place do? And how will it come out of my mouth? In our reading, James highlights that the underlying problem in our speech is that we have a tendency to be generous and overflowing in our praise to God, but tight-fisted and sour in the way that we speak about the world around us. The image James uses is this far-fetched one of a water source that, that at times flows with sweet, life-giving water and at other times produces brackish, salty water. And, and, it's a, and it's an image that his readers are very familiar with because there are two major bodies of water around Judea. One of them is the Sea of Galilee, and it is a source of life. It is a source of industry. It is a source of community. It is, it is full of the resources of a living body of water. And then, of course, the other, down to the south, is known colloquially as the Dead Sea. And there's nothing that really grows in it. There's one type of bacteria that can, that can survive in the Dead Sea that can handle the saltiness of, uh, and the brackishness of the water there. Nothing else can. It's mainly a tourist attraction now, but it had absolutely no value in, in Jesus' time. It was the desert. It was, and, and frankly, the, you know, that's, that's where you find 
the monastery of Qumran is down in there because it was outside of society. It was removed from society. People didn't live around there because it, it didn't offer anything. And so he's using, he, he, he's saying it would be like building a spring up out of the, you know, the, the headwaters of the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden having it flow with salty dead sea water one day. And then the next time you came to it, it was flowing with life-giving water again. But you never really knew what you were going to get when you came with your bucket and your pail to get the water that you need in order to live. Is it going to bring life or is it going to bring lack of life? What are you going to get? I don't know. It's the inconsistency that James is highlighting. That's what he's really highlighting. See, the two waters couldn't be more different. And if you've tried to blend them, the death of the one will overcome the life of the other, unfortunately. James's message is clear. The death that proceeds from our mouths in our everyday life will always kill the life that we profess to claim and live on Sunday morning. Instead, we're called to speak the same kind of redemption in our world that Christ has spoken into us through his sacrifice and his forgiveness and to keep that attitude of sacrifice moving consistently in our hearts wherever our time and space is. We might want to look for specific models and, and I'll be honest, all you have to do is spend some time in the book of Proverbs to find so many models and so many images of what godly and generous speech does and does not look like. For those who are collecting the wisdom of the Proverbs, it seems that speech has a lot to do with wisdom, and speech has a lot to do with the lack of wisdom, too. It has a lot to do with spiritual maturity or lack of spiritual maturity. And the Bible is just full of examples in both the Old and New Testaments, but I have also come to a realization very, very quickly looking at this. When I read what the Bible considers generous speech, it also becomes very situational. A timely rebuke can bring life to someone's soul at one point, but a harsh word can bring death to the same soul at another point. Both of those are in Proverbs. Timing is everything. An affirmation and an encouragement can be life-giving, but could quickly turn into flattery and false counsel that's actually devoid of honesty. We have to be guided by deep principles in order for our speech to become life-giving and generous. A lot of those times, those speech principles have to transcend individual situations. I think the biggest key to practicing generous speech is to look at the focus of our words. Are they designed ultimately to promote Christ and to promote the person that we are speaking to? Or are they designed to promote ourselves? Being able to say the right thing at the right time is important, but it's so easy for that to get twisted. I think of how easy it is to spend our words in order to elevate ourselves. All you have to do is look at how important the art of crafting a good tweet is these days or a great Facebook post that people will notice. Um, we're, we're, I mean, let's be honest. We all kind of know that the life that we portray on social media has become such a promotional, even false image of our reality. Everybody knows that the life you live on Facebook is so much better than the life you live for real. Okay? I mean, let's be honest. You know? Those people that are posting, like, I went to the gym today and I feel bad. You know, like, we, 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 we kill those guys off of our feed pretty quick, 
because you're like, don't tell me about reality. Tell me about the awesome thing that you did so that I can look and go, wow, I wish I was as awesome as you. And into this, like, we have this manifestation, but it's just a manifestation of a much more timeless trend. You know that, right? This timeless trend of a deeper feeling of this need to kind of hoard and promote and amass meaning and value for ourselves in order to have self-worth. Social media is just one of many ways that we can do that. And into this need, into this twisting of, of language, Jesus speaks startling words. The heart of the law is to both love God lavishly and to love others as lavishly as we ourselves desire to be loved. And this means I should exert at least as much effort, if not more effort, in crafting my speech to promote the value and the well-being of others. I think if we could get a handle on that principle, it would change everything about making our speech generous in the sight of the kingdom of God. If I spent just as much time crafting my words to, to glorify and add value and to promote how God loves that person that I find myself with, whoever they are, as I did trying to affirm that God loves me. I think that might change everything. And see, this principle can find its way into all the corners of our speech, both to someone and about someone. They don't have to be there for you to be generous in your speech. What is gossip or slander if not just ignoring generosity in our speech when we talk about someone in order to elevate ourselves? It's the easiest way I know how to define it. I mean, it can, it can, it can disguise itself as concerned Christianity or prayer requests, okay? That's air quotes for those of you that are listening to this online. Um, but it fails to unify us with others. It really only divides us. It has no intention of humility. There is no genuine concern there, not really, when you peel back the layers of it. What's at the heart? Let's be honest. Sometimes the most generous speech that we can give is to be silent. Avoiding speculation, avoiding meaningless talk that protects that person and guards the trust that they place in you, right? To listen well is often so much more important than being a fount of advice. In the book of Job, uh, the friends, they, they do all right as counselors and as people that care until they make the critical mistake of filling the dead space with uninformed and unprofitable advice. And there are extremes of failing to speak when the righteous words are needed, and then there are also the careless slinging of words without intention. Only with the discernment of the Holy Spirit are we able to discern words that are life-giving and how best to give them. And that must come out of being rooted both in the presence of the Spirit in our lives. It requires effort. It requires training. But, but even more so, being rooted in this idea that I do not need to spend my words in order to validate myself. Christ has already done that for me. And so I can spend my words letting others know that Christ has validated them through forgiveness, through encouragement, 
that is honest, through, through rebuke that is honest. You were made for so much more than this. Through silence that is generous. We can validate people in the image of Christ. One of my very, very favorite titles for Jesus in the book of Revelation um, it says that he is the great amen. That he is the faithful and true witness. And this word amen in the Greek is an affirmation. It is a both a positive yes and it's a validation of the truth. And think about that. One of the most basic attributes of who Jesus is is generous speech. He is always, every day, now and to eternity, speaking a true witness about who you and I are. He is affirming us as God's beloved children. He is speaking truth that grows us and directs us and establishes us in God's love and authority. Every day, that is what he is doing. It is a part of, it flows out of his identity as the son, as the savior. It is who he is. And he also says this in in Matthew 15, that it is out of the overflow of our heart that we speak what our heart is fixated on, what our heart is filled with spills over into our speech and from our speech into our actions and our convictions. And so church, I ask you, what is your heart full of today? What is spilling out from the depths of your soul? Does our speech show that we are captivated by a Savior that is spending all of his effort to speak great and wonderful amens into our lives? Allowing us the freedom to let that spill over generously into the lives of others around us. Is that what the model of your soul looks like? Or are we, are we grasping for affirmation elsewhere? And allowing the the brackish waters of dead speech in the world around us to inflame our thirst for meaning to the point where we have no generous words left to lavish on anyone else. Or we're tight-fisted with what we do have because we need it so badly in order to affirm who we are. Mm. Pray with me. Oh, great God who chooses us and calls us by name and calls us yours. Give us the peace of your presence today. And not just today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Because we're going to find ourselves in situations where we we are prone to forget who we are, God. We ask that you would fill us to overflowing with your generous spirit, the spirit of your Son that is always speaking the Amen that is always speaking the truth of who we are. Fill us to fill, fill us to our fullness and to overflowing with that, Lord, so that we can allow that to spill over into these thirsty souls that we come in contact with. So we can speak with your heart, so that we can speak and bring life, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart can be pleasing to you, but can also be life-giving and 
bring pleasure to you by the way that they show the people around us who they really are, that they too are your great amen, that they have been crafted and shaped in your image and that you love them dearly. Lord, help us to, to look into those places that seem rocky or barren and see places where your kingdom can grow and be willing to speak life into those things. By your grace and by your power and by the name of your Son, we pray this. Amen.